recently, a movie was released on Amazon Prime called One Night in Miami. And it's about four iconic characters. Cassius Clay, who we now know as Muhammad Ali, Malcolm X, Sam Cooke, and Jim Brown meeting in a hotel in Miami. I wanted to have a conversation with my best friend, my mentor, Orpheus Black. And we wanted to share our discussion because we felt there were many points that were important and beneficial to the world we are now living in. I hope you'll enjoy this episode as much as we did coming together for it. This is the Pete Wong Podcast, sharing the things that I love with those that I love. I've always wanted to talk about the things that I care about in life. People have told me time after time, why don't you just share more of you? And with that, let's go. This isn't what we're normally used to. We're usually used to doing fighting videos and talking about all the uh, epicness of combat in movies. But, you know, this time we have a little something different. So I don't know where it fits in the paradigm. I feel like struggle is a good segue, but I'm not too sure. Uh, but what's the name of the uh, movie that we're doing today, Pete? So we're going to be talking about One Night in Miami on Amazon Prime. Man, what did you think about that? It's all the movie. I've seen the movie twice now. Mm-hmm. And I, I loved it. And... Um, when when we last talked on the phone, I, I was uh, wanting to talk to you about it, and then you were like, "Hey, I'm gonna I'm gonna watch it. You know, it's it's uh, we're gonna be watching it tonight or tomorrow." And then you said you wanted to talk about it. What better way to talk about this movie than uh, with you? Well, I appreciate that. I appreciate that. And I was like, I was shocked by the fact that you wanted to see this movie. People don't watch black black the traditional air quotes black movie and um and and i understand there's a lot of good ones there's a lot of bad ones um and a lot of people don't can't see themselves reflected back in the characters um so when i hear from a uh, amazing asian man about watching this movie i'm like okay i'm interested so it excel actually accelerated the process of me watching this movie because i usually like for a movie to die down and let all the the fluff go away so i can watch it without everybody saying oh it's so amazing you know what i mean but i'm like i want to support the conversation that's happening around this movie and shape some of the conversation about the movie and about some of the topics they're bringing up because it's like three of my favorite iconic individuals of all time. I mean, this is the Black Rat Pack. You know, this is Sam Cooke, Muhammad Ali, uh, Jim Brown, and uh, Malcolm X in one room on one stage. And I understand it was a play Mm -hmm. prior to being a show, but it was like an opportunity to see like... uh, the super friends you know what i mean like the the justice league in in one room and see an intimate a very intimate portrayal of some of my heroes 
that day, that that afternoon, I saw a video clip of the actor. I can't remember his name, but the actor that played um, Cassius, Muhammad Ali Cassius Clay. I would think it was for like men's health. And he was just talking about how he got into uh, shape, uh, you know, boxing for the character. When I saw him, I was like, okay, I need to see this. Like, I need to see how this guy becomes Cassius Clay because uh, Muhammad Ali is one of my favorite heroes, one of my favorite boxers. I'm one of those. I don't know if, if a lot of people are, but I was a fan of, uh, of Will Smith uh, doing Ali. So I was excited about that. And also Malcolm X, what, I, what little I know, but I definitely have known more uh, as I've gotten older, uh, spending more time learning about him. Uh, has is always has always uh, intrigued me. Has always uh, been an interest of, of mine. Um, mm. And then Sam Cooke, more more about. I don't know him, but I when you hear his music, you're like, oh, that's Sam Cooke. Mm -hmm. And then Jim Brown, I'm I don't, I'm not so familiar with, but I know that he was. Um, uh, I remember in in the playing football. I actually thought it was real. <laughs> you thought actually, what was real? That. That, that these guys um, did meet up in the hotel. It wasn't until after I watched the movie. I, you know, I watch like I like to do when I like a movie, I dive deep into it. And I was like, oh, okay, that makes sense. I could see it as a play, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, when it was, when the movie was first poured out into the ethos, I was like, it's going to be interesting to be a fly on the wall hearing a very intimate conversation. But then I got to thinking like, there's only one of those people who's still alive, I believe, which is Jim Brown, right? It's like, so who recounted that whole story of what happened in that place? Who was in the car? I mean, was it Muhammad Ali? Was it Sam Cooke? And who's retelling that story? There was just so many holes in the premise that I just couldn't do it. And then I remember hearing many of the anecdotal narratives that they had in there. It was just stories that I heard Sam Cooke tell, uh, say in an interview, or I heard Muhammad Ali say in an interview, or I heard uh, Malcolm X say in an interview, and they just crafted all of these sound bites together to make one amazing conversation. So that, I mean, it was genius in what it was, but I was, I was hoping that it would be uh, the latter of the two situations, you know? I didn't know what to expect. What, what piqued my interest was the iconic figures mm -hmm. that we know about or, or some, you know, some more, some more than others people, uh, myself included, I, you know, uh, it wasn't until I started doing boxing that I really got more into Muhammad Ali. And, and, and then as part of that, knowing Muhammad Ali outside of the boxing ring as well mm -hmm. and, and knowing his character and knowing, I've just been such a fan of, you know, watching his clips on YouTube, like, yeah, those interviews and just, just the way that he, uh, composed himself and, and, and how he stood up for the things that he stood up for. Cause I was like, yeah, they're, are they going to be in the room like the whole time? Like, like that's, <laughs> that's always that, ugh, that's always right. that cynical uh, filmmaker uh, storyteller is like, how do they do it? How are they going to do it? Like, 
they're going to be in that room, but then it's these iconic figures. And, and I think like what you said, perhaps for some people that might not be enough mm -hmm. because of who they are, because of what they represented. Some people may not have been exposed or may just not care. Mm -hmm. But I know that there are, but I do know that there are lots of people who um, it, this does, this did resonate in, in some fashion. So I got a few questions, but I, I think we need to jump into it. I need to jump into it. And let's yeah. let's start with the question like yeah. what was your what was your first takeaway? I mean, let's let's sure. talk about sure. your your first thing that really grasped you about the movie. Oh, that's great. That's a great way. Vulnerability. Mm. I, I believe we talked about this even in when we when we talked about Black Panther. Men, main character roles. That are that are vulnerable, mm. and here we are. We have four, and four that we that society knows them. There's something. There's some kind of a background that we already have with these people, with these men, seeing their 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 fears, mm -hmm. seeing their their confidence, their, their, um, their strengths. But also one of my favorite parts was seeing their uncertainties. Mm. That was huge for me from, a, from the filmmaking standpoint, the director or the team allowed them to play out those moments. So that my second viewing, I was watching the exchanges with the characters and watching mm. the reaction of each character and it was amazing that is what stuck out for me and then there were there were other things that were just as important but maybe uh to me just didn't strike me as as quick not until the second viewing so how about you you know i, I think this is going to be very difficult to say but i think regina king did something that uh, was very reminiscent of Baz Luhrmann. Baz Luhrmann is the type of director that is going to tell you what's going to happen at the end, but he's going to craft the story so well that you are going to want to see the whole thing. He does it in Moulin Rouge. He said, the, the person I love is going to die. You know what I mean? And then they go through it. He did with Strictly Ballroom and so on and so forth. So he, he really lets the person in on the end of the story. He, he almost ruins it for you. The way Regina King did this is, you know how it all ends. You know how it all is. Not only that, if you're a person of color, you've heard the same story. It doesn't matter whether it's in the music, it doesn't matter whether it's in the plays, it doesn't matter whether it's in the biographies or the, the history books, it's all the same conversation but you're going to get a different way to appreciate it. You're going, it's going to be served up, stylized and put onto a platter for you to enjoy and digest in a different way. Because for more than a hundred years, this conversation has been happening, right? And so that was the first thing that stood, stood out to me. I'm like, we've been having this conversation forever. 
what is unique about your story that's going to make me feel good about it or give me some insight that I've never heard. And, they, and, and amazingly, she was able to do it. She was, she was able to get me emotionally engaged in a way that kept me enthralled in the story and not like, oh, this again. Mm. You know what I mean? But we, we've heard the struggle, the civil rights thing. We've seen the, the Jackie Robinsons, the Satchel Pages. We've seen uh, all these, these pro athletes. We've seen, you know, go through the struggle, be the big person that everybody loves and hates, the superstar, the Muhammad Ali's and the Joe Frazier's and the, we've seen it, right? What's different about your story? And she brought in a level of vulnerability. She brought in a level of power and integrity. And not only that, she found four characters who could, who could historically be in the presence of each other and not be overshadowed. It's really hard to do. Malcolm X in his circle, no one stands in his shoes. Muhammad Ali, no one out talks him. Right? Sam Cook blows everybody out of the water with his voice. Jim Brown was the most dominant football player of his era. Only these men could be in the same room together, on the same stage, on the same dais, talking to each other in the way that they were talking to each other, hurting, harming, verbally jousting, uh, comforting each other in the way that only powerful men can comfort powerful men. You know what I mean? And so for me, it was a really growing moment to be to see this portrayed in this way hmm. i love that wow. <laughs> i love what you said there powerful men how as powerful men can be yeah yeah i think there's a i think there's a certain level and maybe i'm wrong but uh you know when i when i was a kid the you know men enjoyed the company of men mm -hmm. right and you weren't looked at as you know metric you know homosexual or this, that, and the other, or funny, or queer, or everything like this. But there's a certain certain level of accountability that we can have for each other in those spaces. I can hold you accountable in a way that your wife can't. I can hold you accountable in a way that I couldn't if your wife was there. Right. Right. I can hold you accountable in the, in a way that your peers can't. Mm -hmm. Right. When you're the top of the, the, the heap, the other people's opinions don't matter. Right. You don't talk to a lion about the plight of sheep. Only Malcolm could be in the space of Jim Brown and find consolation. Right. Muhammad Ali, Sam Cooke, powerful men breed powerful men. You know, they create powerful figures. They lift and elevate people to an echelon of stardom. So for me, that was a really proud moment on the scale of, you know, the Black Panthers or, or, or uh, you know, some of the other powerful movies like the original Malcolm X. Mm. Mm. You, you're talking about the uh, Spike Lee? Yeah, the Spike Lee version. Yeah. I, the Spike Lee version was crazy. That was, <laughs> it was so amazing. It was ridiculous. People don't get, 
I, I don't think a lot of people get is that if you watch the Spike Lee movie, what you're going to get is the pre-Malcolm X, Malcolm X, and then you're going to get Malcolm X uh, after the, his Hodge and then his death. This movie takes place right between that. After leaving, but before he leaves the country, after leaving the Nation of Islam, but before he leaves the country, which was a very transformative space for him. So if we talk about like, let's just take Malcolm, because we need to take out Malcolm X's role and put it in, in context, because he was kind of a linchpin for all, this whole thing. Hmm. Malcolm X, uh, his mother was Guamanian. Okay. Dad was Black. His mother spoke nine languages. Right? Father was a preacher. Father, father was more than likely killed by uh the Ku Klux Klan, but that was after they'd been chased from city to city to city. So he already has a natural hatred for oppression and for generally white people because of the offenses that happened. He was taken from his mother because she couldn't care for him because back in the days, they created an environment that was not only oppressive to men, but oppressive to women. Because your man, your husband, your partner was supposed to bring home the money. He's the money maker. And that's one of the reasons that people targeted black men, because if you get the black man, then the rest of the family falls apart because they have no access to income, because women weren't allowed to work in most places, right? So that target happened. So now his mother is being oppressed and she got committed in the insane asylum. He wound up doing uh, you know, criminal activities because he's a child, went to reform school. They put him on the streets with no, no father, no mother, no family. Ironically, you know who one of his best friends was? Hmm. Red Fox. Oh, no way. Huh. Yep. They call one Chicago Red, the other one Detroit Red. <laughs> right? And they also wash dishes in the same, uh, in the same uh, chicken joint. Right, and they went out and they would commit crimes and they would do the thing. And 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 uh, one came, went on to become Red Fox, the other one went on to be uh, Malcolm X, which is absolutely amazing. And they both called themselves Red in a different state because they both had red hair. Then he goes to jail and he gets on the FBI watch list before he gets on the FBI watch list before he joins the Nation of Islam because I believe he wrote Harry, uh, he, he wrote Truman and said, uh, you know, the war that you're, you're, you're committing, I think it was the Korean War at the time is a, uh, a farce. And I, because of this, you know, this thing, I'm going to become a uh, communist who's anti this, that, and the other. And so the FBI opens a file on him. So now fast forward, you know, he becomes a Muslim and his views are a lot different than what people were talking about. He's a staunch feminist. People don't know that he was a feminist. He's anti-oppression of any group of people. People don't realize he's a freedom fighter for all people. The sound bites that you get are only the ones that are anti-established, anti-white or anti-system. But you don't hear about the anti-segregationists. You don't hear about the anti-patriarchy. 
you don't hear about these other things that he talked about and tried to shed a light on because he they didn't want people coming together and saying, hey, I can I can be with this guy. He's fighting for our cause. He's fighting for our cause. So now you fast forward to a man who's tried to champion the little person and is now ousted, broken. Nobody believes that the FBI is watching him. Nobody's believing that he's being tapped. Nobody believes that he, you know, everybody thinks he's paranoid. Right now, he doesn't know if the nation of Islam is watching. I mean, they don't know if the if it's his own friends or 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 if it's the police or if it's the government. They make they're they're basically gaslighting him to create a situation where he looks like he's losing his mind. And they did the same thing to Martin Luther King. So now you enter this hotel room where this man is on his last straw. He's got nothing. His house, no car, everything. He has nothing. And now he's with these people who have everything. Almost like he needs a handout. That pride, that pride. Can you imagine you were once a member of this group and now you've lost everything and everybody thinks that you may be losing your mind and you need a handout. That's where the movie really starts in that space of an abused man, an abused boy, an abused leader who another father figure betrayed. I notice the first scene where we meet Malcolm. I mean, the first scene that we meet him with his, with his wife, with uh, Betty, mm -hmm. right? There was a lot of uh, important information you might miss some of these important like uh, pieces. They even say, we are all alone. Mm -hmm. I just, I, I really like how delicate those scenes with his family were and how much that was such a big part of who he was, even amongst the other guys and their lifestyle, the possible FBI or, or, you know, whoever was looking these little, these little pieces that really make the story, you know, enrich the story and help uh, make it more complex, more dynamic. And even the way Sam Cook responds to him looking at, you know, looking out there. And then you see Sam Cook looking out there and, and he's like, he, he, you know, it's like, you definitely feel something for Malcolm, but then Sam Cook as a friend, he feels something for his friend who, but he's not sure what he can do about it. I think, yeah. I think also when Sam Cook was looking out the window, the, the window was really symbolic of two different perspectives. Malcolm was looking out and seeing someone who was a potential threat, someone who was trying to assail his character, if not his family or his person, where Sam Cooke was seeing people who maybe uh, want to further his career add uh, something else. He didn't know who those people were. He's thinking it's some reporters. He thinks it's some people who maybe found out we're at the hotel and they want autographs. He has no idea, but they're two different perspectives. You know, and I think that that's really important to highlight that 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 window scene is really a perspective shot. Yeah, it gives you an, a different inclination of their minds because those are the two people who went at it. 
because those are people who, people who had two different perspectives. And that was the unifying line to show you that they have two different perspectives. Mm -hmm. Did you notice the, 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 uh, the opening title, how he was under, under the water, the, the iconic photo, Muhammad Ali, I'm oh, sorry, Cash. Well, yeah, 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 yeah. When I saw that, I was like, this is going to be, I had a gut feeling this is going to be on another level, just the authenticity. It was stylized, and I'm glad that you brought that up because I did feel that too. I felt like, I felt like there was a nice juxtaposition of stylized, but yet we're still going to talk about these things that maybe you might only hear, you know, in a hotel or you know, in a house or amongst the people that you really trust or you know yeah you trust and you love and some of the some of the um the jousting that the, the the dialogue was it was it was intense <laughs> like i remember watching it and i was like is he gonna keep going they didn't just leave you hanging they they also followed through with that like mm -hmm. you know like let's say that scene where he finally gets sam cook you know so rattled and he leaves I don't know if it was Cassius or Jim Brown or maybe both of them, but they're like, you know, you crossed the line. You kind of went too far. And he's like, I have to. Mm -hmm. Props to these guys that, that the performances, the acting. Yeah. Uh, I was in, I was, I was so in from the first frame to the last. Yeah. And, and speaking to the underwater uh, yeah. boxing yeah. thing, yeah. Yeah. um, yeah, when they when they came in on that as a boxing fan, I was like, yeah, I mean, I'm, you got me. You got the hotel, you got the pool, you got this idea, you got you got them clowning because you know it's really true. He can't, he couldn't swim, but he loved to do uh, training in water because he felt like you know little did anybody else know that this was a, actually a great low impact workout and resistance training simultaneously to be able to get in there and do that. I don't know where he got it from. But he's definitely, I've seen multiple pictures with him training in the water, hmm. right? Maybe it's his excuse to be in the water or, you know, because he couldn't swim or he's playing around or I, I have no idea. <laughs> but I do know that this was an interesting thing. But the other paradigm is, is this. Uh, for those who are not boxing fans, one of the things that you have to understand as far as the cultural narrative is that in box, boxing is one of the few industries where you still have to play on the racial stereotypes in order to sell tickets. What do I mean? Um, when you have a darker skinned black guy, there's a couple different frames. You give him the angry black man or the vicious, uh, the vicious guy. And when you get the other ones, you get the lighter skinned guys, you get more of the, um, this is a great young man, he's so well-spoken, or he's the happy black man and nothing ever gets him down. And you'll see these, and when you, when you look at it like this, in your mind, can you tell me what Sonny Liston looks like? Can you see a clear image of Sonny Liston, his face? No. You know what I mean? How about Floyd Patterson? No. Right? These are all people that Muhammad Ali fought. Right, but we can't see them in our mind because we've been sold an idea about who they are, not 
the actual identity of what they are. They should say, listen, a monster. He's a beast. He's a this, he's a that. And they talk about him in these animalistic terms so that you already feel like you know him. But rarely do they ever focus on his fate. Rarely do they ever show a shot of him. Rarely do they really focus and get a good interview with this person. They want to sell you on the idea how he's being portrayed, almost like wrestling. Right, whether it's true or not, what they want are the stereotypes so that they can get the certain boxing fans in. Muhammad Ali, he's this uppity Negro. Mm. I'm like, you gonna just say you can't just say that to white people? They'll kill you. People told him that all the time, his whole life. You cannot say that to white people. They will kill you. They'll shoot you. You cannot get away with. You can't beat up white people and do this. In the same way, you can see, uh, you know, one of the few people who who got out of that and, and was in that space was Sugar Ray Leonard, mm. Muhammad Ali, great fighters. And, uh, but they were also considered uppity. Jack Johnson, same thing. You'll see the angry, angry Negro in uh, Floyd Mayweather. You'll see him in Sonny Liston. You'll see him in Joe Frazier. You'll see him in, although these people were some of the nicest people. Yeah. Right. The happy Negro, George Foreman. Now look at how often, you know, George Foreman's face. If you think in your mind, you can see what George Foreman looks like. The other thing is we have to remember that Muhammad Ali was really young, 22, 23, 24, 25. We've all said things that we didn't want to say at that age. Muhammad Ali was the opposite of Malcolm X as uh, Malcolm, uh, uh, Muhammad Ali was not a feminist. In the, mm. Right, he was pro integration, uh, uh, pro um, segregation. He even talked to the Klan. Actually, went out to a Klan meeting and preached on how he thought that uh, blacks and whites should not mix, marry, or anything like that. He was so pro black that he was anti almost everything else in the narrative. But he's twenty two. He's got a heavyweight belt. He's one of the baddest men on the planet. You can't tell this man nothing, right? Which is another reason why we had to get Malcolm X away from Muhammad Ali. This is why the, the thing happened because his spiritual advisor, who was Malcolm X, um, notice in that scene where you see, uh, he's like, this is my spiritual value Malcolm X, but when he's being inducted into the nation of Islam, you see the empty chair, the empty chair was trying, it was figuratively referencing that Malcolm X wasn't here anymore. Yeah. And now he's being indoctrinated in a, a language of hate, a language of separation, a language of, uh, anti-American sentiment. Now, mind you, I'm not pro- American rhetoric, you know what I mean? But I am definitely not anti my country. So, yeah. but but this was really interesting to be able to see a person who is vacillating between the being the black person that he was at the time, which was upper, you know, upper middle class, you know, black person, Olympic title holder. Um, you know, I mean, he's won awards, he's won belts, he's he's a star. And then becoming this outspoken voice for what was considered at the time a hate group. Yeah, I feel like we we don't ever know much about Cassius Clay, aka you know Muhammad Ali's the dynamic of his family, and because I was curious at such a young age, 
I wanted to raise the question, like what, what drove him or what, you know, if, if you knew what drove him to seek out specifically nation of Islam or was it Malcolm? Like to seek out uh, the nation. Yeah. Well, no, Mal Malcolm X was a very charismatic person. And, uh, you know, he brought the visibility of the nation of Islam onto a world stage, a global platform. And so he was a voice that was being seen on television, that was being heard on radio. He had, he was a person that was a, somebody who was permeating um, the American mentality at the time. And he was in sharp contrast to Martin Luther King. So you had two different people and you kind of had to choose, are you a Martin or are you a Malcolm? Wow. Right, but you will be a part of the struggle which is the problem with Sam Cooke's character because Sam Cooke was like, uh, I love being loved by white people. You know, I'm not doing anything to make my audience, uh, you know, mad. And uh, why should I speak ill of other people? You know, they, these people pay my bills, pay my car, keep my wife in these houses in beautiful clothes. And so he's like, all these other people are like, we've made a choice. You have to make a choice. And Sam didn't make a choice, but he made an anthem for the struggle. He made a rallying cry for the struggle. He made a testimonial that will probably stand withstand the test of time because he was pushed by his peers. Um, because Bob Dylan created that song that in Sam Cooke's words said it spoke to him in a way that he had never been spoke to by before. And he was angry that he didn't write that song. That a, a white guy could speak more about black struggle. So Malcolm X's lines was actually Sam Cooke's line. He said spoke more about the struggle than he ever could. It's, it's like one of the lines that they say that also resonated with me. If you're not, um, I, don't, I can't remember exactly, but it's like, if you're, you have to choose your side, right? If, if you're not, if you're, Cause that's something that I had to deal with myself is understanding that if you're, if you're, if you're not with us, then you are against us mm -hmm. having to decide because of all the, the racism, the policies, you know, the, the, the systems that are in place. So then at a young age, Muhammad Ali knew, knew what side he was on definitely. And he found the, the organization. So at the time was represented, like represented, by Malcolm's persona and, and, and that kind of thing. But then uh, as we see in the film, he's at a, he's at a turning point because of all the things that has, uh, Malcolm is turn, at a turning point where he has to make the decision. Well, the difficult decision because people are making it difficult to leave. Cause I, I love it that they show, they show the ritual, mm -hmm. uh, the, the, the prayer. Making yeah. salad, yeah. Yeah, and and then, but then at the end, mm -hmm. he decides not to go. He decides not to go with Malcolm. No, that's not that's not oh, what happened. Okay, Malcolm, instead of taking him with, instead of Mal Malcolm made the choice of delivering him into the hands of the Nation of Islam. Oh, to protect him or. 
not to just protect him, but he didn't know where he was going to be. Malcolm had nothing to offer, you know what I mean? And he could try and use this man to do this thing, but he was like, you know what? I'm a man of my word. I said that I was going to do this thing and I delivered you back into the hands of the, the nation of Islam. You know what I mean? And then he would, and then uh, Malcolm was removed from the nation of Islam. Yeah. He, you know, so maybe you could say he left. You can also say he was removed, but you know, the car, like she said, the car, the house, everything, we don't own any of it. Yeah. Right. And so, you know, I think it's more he was pushed out because people didn't want to see uh, what it was that Malcolm X saw. You know, what I mean, they didn't want to believe that this charismatic leader was doing these things, um, which at the end of the day, his I think has been proven to be so. But at the time, they were gaslighting him. It, it really went to a different place for Malcolm. I think he did the right thing. You know, at the end of the day, I think that. Uh, Muhammad Ali needed to be with a stable organization that understood his pain, understood his rage, understood his uh, need to be to be in a protective environment where it could foster not only his strength, but his education in who he is as a Black person in America who is, is being under fire and witnessing people like him being under fire. He needed to be able to have that protection because you gotta think how many death threats Muhammad Ali gets just going to a, uh, a, a boxing match and not knowing, well, I'll just call the police and have them escort me to the ring. But these are a bunch of white men. And then there's a bunch of white men in the audience. And then there's a bunch of, it, it, it turns into this thing where you can't know who you trust. So it's like, I'm going to come down here with a group of people, make sure I get to my, my job, make sure I get to these places. I got protection. Again, another component that people don't talk about, the death threats, you know, and the need for protection. And, and the Nation of Islam specializes in providing African-Americans with that level of protection. Not only that, but their families. Because who's with your wife and your children while you're boxing or while you're away at boxing camp. You trust someone who is in the struggle with you, not with the uh, potentially in the struggle against you. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I think Malcolm understood this and said, I can't give you that at this moment in time, go with them. And if for some reason you feel like this is not your calling, you can always come back and we will create something that we can do for ourselves. Well, thanks. Thanks for making that. Uh, clarifying that for me it makes I, I, I yeah I see the connection there the more we talk about these type of details uh, it makes me really think really feel for Malcolm X like completely if you ever get a chance look up the uh, you can go and, and see the uh, some of the redacted uh, FBI files on Malcolm X and you can see like call his house say, you know they call his house like you know a hundred times a day and hang up Calls house a hundred times a day, scares kids, drive out front, throw bricks at the window. You know what I mean? Like, like this is our, this is our government. So now as only as he outed as a, you know, is treated like a communist at the time, which they shouldn't have treated him. They're also treating him like a black guy, which they shouldn't have treated him. And then they're treating him like a, a terrorist, a potential terrorist. He's a triple threat, you know? And so uh, they gave him the treatment to try and drive him crazy, try and drive his wife away, to try and fracture him. Or what, and, and pretty much it worked. 
he had to leave America in order to find himself. He 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 leaves for Mecca. Yeah, he makes Hajj, but before he did that, there's another thing that people don't don't remember or don't understand is that he went to Europe first, did speaking and lecturing in Europe, went to Africa, did speaking and lecturing uh, there, went to Middle East, did uh, speaking and lecturing there, and then went to uh, went on Hajj. Mm. He was about, you know, he says himself, I'm about liberation. You know what I mean? I'm about equality and, and, and human rights. He's a human, he identified as a human rights activist who happened to be Muslim. But again, what really got him is he wanted to go before the UN and bring the plight of African-Americans to the UN. That became a problem. That, I think that was his undoing. It's like, we really don't need to be putting this problem on the world stage. He went on Hajj, and then when he came back from Hajj, after meeting other Muslims, after getting the, gaining the support of non-Muslim, uh, non-nation of Islam Muslims, it's like, wow, this guy can, you know, if we could just, if he's going to rally the Black community, it was probably about 9 to 10% of the population at the time. You had other Muslims who were another demographic of, you know, I mean, probably three to five percent at the time, but they had affluence because they had blonde hair, blue eyes, they had red hair and green eyes. They, had, you know, they could pass for white, and they had those jobs. Mm-hmm. They had influence. They had place of power. They just didn't let people know that they were Muslim. Now he's in with them. He's in with, you know, he's got access to money because he talked to people, you know, oil people. They're like, you want, we, we can support you now. Because notice he didn't have a problem with having a house then. He didn't have a problem with having a car then. You know what I mean? He went and got the financial means that he needed in order to be in that place. And then he gets done in. Jim Brown and Malcolm X about the, um, the darker, the lighter uh, skin. Uh, what were your thoughts about about that? Because we we we've we've had this conversation before. Yeah, I talk about this conversation a lot. <laughs> I mean, we just started talking about you know the colorism, you know, you know the colorism right. in boxing, and then yeah. there's colorism amongst African Americans. You know, what I mean, and and you know about being light skinned and being dark skinned. On a personal note, I was actually in a in a Facebook group where someone says how does colorism affect you as being a black man? And I was saying that uh, I've always been in the middle. I've never been dark enough to be considered chocolate or light enough to be high yellow. And so I've never felt comfortable talking about colorism in a room where there are black men and women who are swung to the polarities. Mm. So I don't talk blackness with black people around colorism because i'm like dark-skinned guys like yeah don't you don't understand what we're talking about light-skinned guys are like you don't know what you're talking about and so i just don't talk about it you know i i'm, I'm willing to rep it to the world you know and, and talk about being a black man or a black person in america but amongst my own peer group i still don't really talk about it that being said i do recognize what Jim Brown is saying and that some of the most pro-black people I've met are some of the lightest skinned people that I've ever met. Hmm. 
You know, I mean, I just know, I know a bunch of light-skinned people who are just double O Negro. Like they, man, they take blackness to the oomph. You know what I mean? And are they trying to prove something? I don't know. Are they trying to be recognized? I don't know. You know what I mean? I Like, I don't know how to have that conversation, but I've seen it. And I've also seen black men who are the darkest you can pretty much think of try to be neutral in a room. Like, like it's like, we all know you're black. It's okay. It's okay. Like, you don't have to code switch in this space. You know what I mean? Like you can, it's okay to be black. You know what I mean? And, uh, and for some reason, some of them try to hide it. So it's such an advanced conversation and very difficult to deal with in, in, in a very taboo subject, even for me to talk about. But it definitely exists. And they, and they have what's called the paper bag test. Are you familiar with the paper bag test? Uh, not the paper bag one, but the, but the, the dolls. No, paper bag yeah, yeah. test is is if you were darker than a paper bag, you were like untrustworthy. Oh my gosh. If you're a paper bag or lighter, you're okay. Right. And so that's how people segregated different types of black. Was the paper bag test. This was something that was ingrained, like oh yeah. You can Google it. It's, it's a paper bag test. And it's a, it, it really started really with whether you could work in the house. If you were lighter skin, you, you were passable, you could work in, inside the house. You got more favor, you got more treats, you got more uh, freedoms, you got more, well, whatever freedoms are. Um, you got more, and then because you were darker, they gave you less intentionally. It was, and it was really intentionally created to cause division between black people, black and brown people. Because, you know, Latinos, uh, even some Cubans, you know, consider themselves white because of the Spaniards and because of their light skin. It's like, hey, I'm, I'm white. What are you talking about? I'm white. You're Cuban. Nope, I'm white. You're black. You get some Latinos who are Afro-Cuban or cool with it. Puerto Ricans are Afro-Cuban or cool with it. But then you get some Puerto Ricans, they're like, no, I'm white. Hmm. Right. And it's really, it's really a, a, a culture uh, that created this, this, this idea to sow division between people who are brown. Even you probably even see it with dark skinned Asians. Yep. Yep. Right. Dark skinned Asians, light skinned Asians. I remember seeing this documentary in Cambodia. They were doing like getting plastic surgery because of the, because of the, the the color, like lighter, lighter, mm -hmm. get, get more privileges or opportunities, and I never thought about that before. You know, that that was like a wake up call for me. And then I I think it might have been you uh, bringing up to me. You know, we watched the YouTube video of the the baby doll test, and that was that was a. Uh, another reality check, you know, for me of this happens and this is, this is happening. So kind of, it put something, it put my own perspective in perspective. Mm -hmm. and, and I think it's important too, because you see that in Sam Cooke, you have a very dark skinned black man. And in Jim Brown, you have a very dark skinned black man. 
And both of them had two very different ways of navigating the space, whereas one came into it like, I'm black, I'm going to be black, I'm not going to compromise about being black, like, I'm not going to tone it down, I'm not going to do anything, right? Where Sam Cooke is like, you know what, let me just kind of just kind of get through these situations, you know, it's about making this money, it's about, you know, we ain't got to get stuck on the black thing, you know what I mean? Again, that's in the movie. Um, but he was doing things for black people behind the scenes. Right. But he's like, man, I don't want this attention on me because then they're going to alienate me. They're going to lock me out of these doors. They're not going to give me the opportunity to create, you know, Sam Cook had 40 uh, top 10 songs in seven years. Like that's how prolific Sam Cook is. He's only missed one tour date and it was because of segregation. You know what I mean? You're talking about an iconic man and who is, who technically is a very dark skinned black man existing in the United States, but is pretending to be complacent so that he can have financial access to uh, specific economies within the United States that would normally not allow it to happen. I got I got a question for you. Yes, yes, please. What is uh as a and I don't actually I don't know if you identify as a brown man. You I think you're a brown man and respect you as a brother in 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 I like to say a brother in arms, you know. <laughs> right? Uh, how did the movie affect you as a brown person? How, how did you feel about the conversation around color? Yeah. And how did you feel around about these brown slash black men having these conversations about people of color? There were there were many scenes that became very relevant for me uh, because of the changes that have been going in me, the uh, awakening, the turning a new leaf uh, perspective. Okay. I got quite emotional um, when Malcolm, he says it was absolutely necessary because black people are dying. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and just the emotional weight and the gravity of that scene based on what I now know and based on what I now have accepted not necessarily agree but have accepted it mattered to me because i don't want i don't want that to happen the things that i now know i don't i never wanted it to happen but but in a sense i don't think i had chosen a side i think i was playing it maybe like sam cook mm. using what we've been talking about using on what what the movie shared with us uh, not mm -hmm. knowing Sam Cooke personally, but I feel like for a long time, for much of my years, even even after you know, even after a couple years, you know, our friendship, you know, I still had not was not able to accept the truths and was in denial to a certain extent because I didn't want it to be true. Mm. 
like in the movie, these iconic figures, my my heroes, they are my heroes, you know, like, mm-hmm. my, like Muhammad Ali has become one of my heroes because of the way he speaks. What's what's that line he says uh, about 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 rent? Loving people, you know, like loving loving people. That's your rent or something like that. When you while you're still alive or something like that. Here, <laughs> so that scene where Malcolm is is pushing, pushing, pushing the edges, pushing because he truly believes that if he doesn't push, he's gonna lose another believer, another supporter. For me, watching this at, at this time in my life and being a, a grown man who has truly begun to decipher his values, his, his thoughts, his beliefs, his integrity, it was really powerful for me to hear, to, to, for me to, to witness that. The last thing that resonated with me very much was that scene with Muhammad Ali and Sam Cooke in the car. And he talks about power. And he talks about being seen. That hit me because how much, how much you mean to me, how much other brown, brown people uh, in my life matter and if we're not being seen, not only are we not being seen, but we're being killed. Mm-hmm. That to me is a no-no. <laughs> that to me is a, is a, I, I now understand I want to do everything that I can to be against that and perpetuate whatever I can in my, in my power in my body to not allow for that. But I understand it's, it, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a systematic thing. It's, it's deeper than uh, my knowledge, but I think being educated, being revealed, accepting has been a big part of that. Hmm. Uh, accepting the, accepting that, that it, it, it's not uh, imaginary, that it's real. Hmm. And uh, so that scene in the car where they're talking about power, being safe to be who we are, to live how we want to, the human rights, like any human. Mm-hmm. That yeah. was so, so important to me. That's good. I'm glad to hear it. I, I, you know, that, that's, that's one of the things that I'm talking about, you know, when we're talking about there, it's the same story. The police is about the government. It's about uh, state-sanctioned and government-sanctioned murder. You know, it's it's about structured racism and oppression. And the, you know, we're in 2021. They were in 1960 something. Yeah. Same thing, right? But before that, this this whole thing got started because of something else. And then that movement got started because of something else. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's really important to, to, really, to really be able to understand that this is, not some, this is not a part of imagination. It's not a figment of imagination. 
right? This is, there's no justification for it. And, and you know, what's funny, you know, they got 50 million reasons as to why you shouldn't kill an animal, but can create every reason as to why it's okay to kill a, a person of color or to lock a, a brown child in a cage, right? Or to have a prison, uh, I'm sorry, a preschool to prison pipeline, or, you know what I mean? Like they, you know, the, they have all these things like let's rescue animals, but can't rescue a child who's in danger, right? How many people would have allowed uh, an officer to kneel on a dog's neck to the point of killing him, but not a human. You can rationalize humans killing humans, but not an animal. This what it says is that a group of people in this, based on color, are subhuman, right? And Malcolm X in that movie is not just fighting a race war, but for humanity to be recognized on this earth, in this moment as a man, to have the rights of a man, to be afforded the luxuries and the humanity of a man. I mean, he said it. He said, in this day, at this time, by any means necessary. But you will not be dehumanized any longer. So if you can't afford a person their humanity or right to exist, you know, then there's a problem. And I don't see why other people can't see how that is not a problem. This movie in a more eloquent way is elevating the conversation that happened in their time, that's happening in our time, that happened to their parents, that happened to their parents' parents, that happened you know, their friends and family and their relatives, and we're just talking about it in another format, in another venue, in another age, another era, nothing changes. And it's unfortunate. If we do always hear these conversations, if nothing is changing, what is there then? What is there if, if nothing changes? Because what I'm getting, what I'm feeling is, is that despite what's happening or despite what's been done, the conversation still needs to happen. What makes this one different from the other ones that maybe don't resonate as much? I think they all resonate in their own way. Mm. You know, Malcolm... X, the movie Malcolm X delivered a message. It was a message of hope, a message of resistance. Uh, it inspired men and women to take pride in who they are as Afro-Americans, to be able to walk tall and not just be complacent with the status quo. It was a message that was lost on my generation and uh, the, maybe the generations just before me. And that was what it was designed to do. This one was about a man. It was about a human being who was at his wit's end. A man who took care of everybody else before himself. A man who put the struggle and the plight of Black people between before the uh, struggle and plight of his own family 
it was about a man who saw an opportunity to use a young man, a young, uh, easily to influence man and did the right thing. The evolution of Malcolm X, not the revolution of Malcolm X. And I think that this, seeing that strong man with tears in his eyes, seeing him be comforted and loved by another man of his, of power, of his stature, to see that there's a certain level of intimacy between not just black men, but human beings, that space can be created for those feelings and it's okay. I think they got a chance to show men that they can be emotional, that they can be driven to a point and it's okay to show yourself in all your humanity, you can show yourself in every aspect of who you are and still be masculine, still be powerful, still be a person that is worth following. Because at the end of the day, humanity is what we're fighting for. So we have to be able to demonstrate it and not just be some uh, version of man, but be a human. Mm, well said. Well said. That was that was it. Mm. That was that was why I wanted to watch it two times. Our friendship, our relationship, and and the men that that we that we do, but we are able to have, you know. And and maybe maybe it's not a lot. When I watched those guys in the room, I thought about I, I thought about you. I thought about Henry. Likewise. My heroes. I get to be Malcolm X in this story. Oh, hey, I, Ali, Ali. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess that leaves uh, Henry to be Sam Cooke there. Because uh... <laughs> he's not Jim Brown, right? <laughs> no, he's not Jim Brown, though. <laughs> I wonder who our Jim Brown would be. <laughs> Maybe we haven't Th Brown Thomas, yet. Thomas. Oh, Thomas can be Jim Brown. Okay, I got it. I got it. There's Thomas. I got it. Right, right. So Henry, you're gonna <laughs> you're gonna have to sing us a little uh, little melody. <laughs> <laughs> the ecosystem that we have inside of ourselves and all the things that's connected to and how it's wired is really uh, unique in that. What we, what some people deem as being man, the man has something to do with like the job you have or your access to money so you can provide for the people that you love. And they feel like that's the man. Or there's this, you know, this physical prowess that a person has where he, he's a strong lover or a good fighter or something. And that's a man. And then there's you know, the good loving friend and that's a man. And there's the, you know, there's so many things. But at the end of the day, we are all those people. Everyone in those room, in that room, has a place in our being and in our psyche. And we're not accessing all of them because we're good at one. And so we lean into that. But we're not accessing Malcolm. We're not accessing uh, Jim Brown. We're not accessing Sam Cooke. We're not accessing Muhammad Ali. We're just picking one and staying rooted in that one because 
that's what we're good at. But we're not cultivating the whole the whole shebang. We're not bringing out the whole thing. When it's time to lead, Malcolm needs to come to the forefront. You need to speak passionately about who you are and what you believe in and demonstrate that you're a man of conviction. And then when it comes to writing a sonnet, a song, a love letter, a magnum opus that comes from something deep in your heart to the woman that you love, let Sam Cooke come out and emerge. And when you have to be alone in a ring, you against the world, let that Muhammad Ali out, fight the good fight, get knocked down, get back up. It's not over until it's over, keep going. That mentality, we are all of those people rolled up into one, but we're selling ourselves short every day and not really embracing our power, leveraging the entire emotional, psychological ecosystem in order to achieve the goals that we want. And I think it's, uh, we're all the worst as men for it. I challenge you to speak with your peers and your friends and your family and the ones you love and the people that love you with as much passion as they spoke in that movie to incorporate and bring that into your existence in that world to show that you are a man of principle, a man of character and a man of passion. Because the only thing we can know about you truly is what you say and it, what you do, what you believe in, who you love, who you hate, who you loathe. Speak it into existence. Understand who you are in that moment and rise to the occasion. As you're sharing, I definitely now can pinpoint some of those character archetypes in my life, but I would love to, but I would like to continue to bring them out, bring them out. What about Jim Brown? I'm trying to understand his character archetype. He's the, the one I, I don't know as much, even though his words were more soft-spoken, his choice of words were more deliberate. I feel like he is, a, he is quite complex. But what can we pull from Jim Brown, would you say? Yeah, you know, man, I, 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 I have a problem with the Jim Brown because I realize that I have a fear of, uh, of the Jim Brown archetype. Not Jim Brown, but Jim Brown archetype. I actually met Jim Brown. I wasn't going to say this. I met Jim Brown under some very uh, not-so-good circumstances, and he's a dick. You know what I mean? Like, he, he really is in real life. But we have to separate the man from the myth. We have to se separate the legacy from the legend. And in what he represents in that film is the war horse. He is the person that's like, I'm going to carry you across the finish line, kicking and screaming if I have to. The strong silent type is really hard to, to access. It's really hard to cultivate but it's powerful and it's like how to be powerful without using your word how do you be powerful without using your muscles how do you be powerful without uh using your intent your ability to intimidate or to swoon or to but but to just be so present in the moment that people find solace in you being in the room that is so difficult to, to do to be i don't know if it's something that you can uh, 
obtained, but it's definitely a quality to strive for for each and every person. He has presence, you know, and, it, and again, one of the things that, that I can say from actually meeting the man is before he enters the room, you know, he's in the room. You know what I mean? Like he's such a powerful presence. It's like uh, an apex predator. It's like, you may not see a tiger when it walks in the room, but you know, it's in the room. Yeah. Everybody knows yeah. something in the air that's charged it up that says this person is here now. Hmm. Right, it's time to pay attention. And, and Jim Brown definitely has that, that aura. He is uh, uh, the peak of physical prowess. No one wanted a problem with Jim Brown. No one raised their voice to Jim Brown, right? Because even if you could beat Jim Brown up, he's got the cardio, the win, the strength, and the tenacity and the fortitude to win this fight. You are not going to beat him. He's the indomitable force. And I realized for me, I probably left it off subconsciously because in my head, like, when it comes to physical prowess as an older man, I'm like, oh, I, you know, it's harder to bring out the Jim Brown because I'm older or, or my, you know, I've got arthritis in my knees or I've got this, I can't be a Jim Brown, but that's why archetypes are so important because they highlight not only where you're strong, but where your deficit is, you know, let that emerge from you and organize yourself in a way that it inspires you and drives you and motivates you and wants you to be that which you can't be. And I don't want to be lesser than anyone. I, I can see the avoidance in that. And so I'm like, I'm going to have to push myself physically to, to be able to assume some of those other things because I believe that I've done the boxing, I've done the, the, the Malcolm Xing, I've done the Sam cooking, I've been in music, and I've been in, you know, in boxing, I've been in a nation of Islam, you know what I'm saying? Like, I've done them. I, I have no problem asking. Where I failed was a football, when I played football. You know what I mean? When it comes to the athletics, I am not the best. And maybe, and maybe this is where I need to start, this shows where I, my deficit is and where I need to start raising my game uh, where I need to start and maybe start at 47, getting healthy, but, you know, I got nothing but time, right? Yep. What about you? When I learned boxing from you, I learned that confidence that Muhammad Ali had. Not to say, not, not to say I have the same one, you introducing me to try his style. Because you saw, like, for some reason, you know, like, I think that might work for you. I love it. I mean, <laughs> it feels so relaxed, so carefree. Uh, not to say that you won't, you're not in, in, in danger, <laughs> um, but it's, it's a calculated measurement. It's, it's, uh, it's you know, it's beautiful. It's, it's beautiful. That's where the confidence comes from, the the I believe in myself. Also play. Also, let's have fun. Let's banter. Let's joke around. You know, let's be human. The Malcolm. Wow. <laughs> I guess I'm just scratching the surface on Malcolm.
you see how you can kind of use it as a tool to see where you're measuring up and not measuring up to, yeah. to and not to anyone else's expectations or even to them, but to, to your version, you know where you're falling short, you know where your deficits are and where you need to raise your game, right? Nobody has to tell you, but this is how being around powerful men sharpens other men. It's like when that guy walks in the room, I feel like I don't even exist. And so it's, do you want to be relegated to non-existence or do you want to bring yourself up? You want to raise yourself. Do you want to put your chest out, carry yourself better, walk over and meet that person, shake his hand, look him in the eyes, speak with conviction. Problem people don't speak with convictions because they don't have them. What do you believe in? What's worth fighting for? What's worth dying for? And champion that cause, right? Yeah. I believe that ever since I was a young boy, I did have a firm belief in justice and what I, what I, what I believed was should or should not happen. But I think as I got older, the world scared me. Mm. I, 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 I felt like I gave away my power, but now I'm equipping myself with the tools, I'm equipping myself with the education, the knowledge, the people, the support, the foundation, the conviction. Now that I'm older, in these last couple of years, because I watched uh, Malcolm X, uh, X uh, the Spike Lee, Denzel one, not too long ago, and I was moved in a different way where before I, I, I thought it was some, like I was like, oh, I never got through the first part before because I didn't understand his journey, his spiritual path, but also, you know, yeah, his conviction. I mean, it's his, his sacrifice is, is not many will do it. Recently, when I was in quarantine, I watched, you know, a few documentaries and one in particular on, Mel um, sorry, on Martin Luther King Jr. I'm, I'm trying to remember the time period, but, but it, was, it was after Selma, and he went to Chicago to help the poverty situation. There was still a lot of stuff in the South. And he was like, I, I can't, I know I can't leave that, but there's stuff happening up here. I got to I got to go there. Mm -hmm. And he went there and it was not easy at all. Mm -mm. So I look at that and I witnessed someone who, who made a choice Luckily, with the love of his family, you know, his wife always so supportive from, from the beginning to, to even when she passed away. And I just love this, the story about him and his, and his family inviting the kids into their home. Because they didn't have heat, I think. And, and he was trying to get heat in the building. And, but all the kids were in there. And, and, and a lot of people weren't sure about him but the people who got taken care of, uh, like those kids, they knew what he was about. Now it was just a matter of getting all the politicians, the government of Chicago to support that. And that was not easy. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, down South, whole lot of stuff was happening you know and it's just it's it's an intense documentary but i feel like it was it was one of the things that helped me get stronger when i was feeling 
fearful and doubt, you know, being in the confines of a hotel room for 14 days, having, I think the word is conviction. Uh, mm -hmm. So yeah. And then Sam Cooke, I think most recently, <laughs> having someone that I can treat like, darling you know <laughs> it's right, like right, right, you know right. i don't i don't know how to describe it but just sam cook's music all of his music i need to understand i need to learn a little bit more about jim brown maybe to know a little bit more about his character but based on what you've shared hell yeah to be that strong human the one that will carry you on on his back i think i try to do that if i could personify that in a physical in a physical sense I think that's kind of a new thing for me in the last couple of years I'm also on that trajectory given what what you shared with me what you've given me what I've been able to experience through you from you mm -hmm. yeah. I appreciate that I mean it never ends it's 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 always continuous it's just you know, we're doing it differently. But I think all men need this. I think we talk about rite of passage. <laughs> and the more men that I'm talking to that do want to be in these spaces, also, I always feel like I wish I had something for them where it is a, more like a ritual. Mm -hmm. Right? Because I can talk to them. I can have great conversations, we can hang out, but it's not the same when it's something a little bit more, something you can go to, but mm. uh, space, place, time. <laughs> Sacrifice. Yeah. So I think this film was a nice conversation uh, regarding the things that we already uh, are about, all already, uh, we make a part of our lives, I think, already. Mm -hmm. I so agree. I so agree. And I hope that on some level, uh, people who may or may not listen to this, <laughs> you know, really appreciate the vulnerability of you being in this space, speaking about, you know, your, your successes and your shortcomings, as well as, you know, being able to talk about uh, what you feel like you need to work on, what you need to make better. And hopefully the audience that you create, cultivate, will grow with you and be able to recognize the leaps and bounds that you are making in front of them. You know what I mean? Because we have to lead by example. You know, and what's funny is, is leaders aren't, uh, don't put themselves out. They're not, they're not dictators. They are elected by a group of people and they are watching you all the time. They just like, we're going to follow that guy and they're going to watch you. Everything that you do, you're a role model. And uh, I think the biggest thing that you can demonstrate is to show them self-improvement, your growth. Demonstrate and show and show how you grow and then move forward. That's powerful. It's like, you got to have that walk it like you talk it kind of swag. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> I think that's a TikTok video, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Just kidding. Yeah. No, this has been great. I'm so glad that you asked, uh, asked, asked us to do this.
good. Yeah, that's nice conversation. Definitely, definitely. <sighs> All right, so I guess right. uh, yeah. <laughs> for Orpheus Black and Pete Wong, thank you so much for tuning in until our next movie or review or perspective take. <laughs> it will happen. Come back and see us. Yep. All right. Thanks. Thanks for tuning in. We'll catch you next week. And remember, you are loved, you are enough, and you are worthy. Blessings to all of you.